0: This morning, we're going to be continuing our sermon series that we have decided to call If the Church Were Christian, based on a uh, book written by my now favorite author, <laughs> right, um, Philip Gully. And uh, by the way, uh, it was neat seeing all the kids this morning in there costumes, and, and Marvin comes in this morning and goes, I love your costume. <laughs> and I said, uh, well, actually, I'm dressed this morning like my favorite um, fictional character, Sam Gardner, who is uh, the pastor of Harmony Friends in Harmony, Indiana, who is uh, a book written by Philip Gully, loosely based on Philip Gully. So there you go. This morning, I am dressed as a pastor Quaker from southern Indiana. All right. (laughs) Perfect. So, okay. Uh, Our sermon series this morning is, um, yeah, the uh, we're going to talk about questions. So let's do that by jumping in here in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to look at chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and Go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over ninety-nine others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Or suppose. A woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. May we be blessed this morning by the reading and the hearing of these words of Scripture. Let's pray. Good morning, Lord. We thank you this morning for this time, this place, family and friends, loved ones, opportunity to gather together and to to worship you. We thank you this morning for the the special music being a fifth Sunday that that we get to celebrate and, and just look out and see the smiles and the joy that that brings. Thank you for the children in their costumes and for the adult leaders that are down that wing every Sunday. I think this morning it's, it'd be good for us to remember to not take them for granted. That There are people here at this church that are willing to love our children as if they were their own. And so this morning we pray that that spirit that you've placed in them to love children as if they were their own, that you would take that spirit that you've already placed in us, but but breathe life into it. Fan that flame through this time of communion with you. And through your Holy Spirit that we might be transformed into people who are Willing to love all of your children as if they were our own. From the oldest to the youngest. I pray this morning for a clarity of thought. There's so much running through my head right now. I need you to order the words. And I pray that you might hide me behind your cross. So what we experience here today is you, your grace, your mercy, your joy, your love, your kindness, your compassion, your justice, and your righteousness. We pray all these things in your most holy and precious name. Amen. So this week I had the opportunity to listen to Jaron's sermon from last week. And I loved the story that he shared about the uh, the person who was questioning their faith. Do you remember that? Do you remember that story? And he talked about how they met. Uh, he met with a, I believe it was on a plane, right? That, uh, okay. That they. I, in my mind, I was thinking that they were on an airplane together. But anyway, they they met, and it was with a pastor. And uh, and and rather than just sort of allowing that person the space, the pastor said, "Well, this is." I'm, you, you need to know my job. I feel like my job is to convert you. Do you remember that? Oh yeah. And and I've been thinking a lot about that that kind of answer that we want to give. I, I have my phone for a reason. It's not. I'm expecting a call. I've got something on here. Um, so, um, I, I've been I've been thinking about questions a lot lately. And. Um, and I, I truly believe that if we were, if we were Christian, we would, we would actually be a lot more comfortable with questions than we are. In fact, I think that we would be much uh, more eager to ask questions than to provide answers. Now, many of us in the church today, we prefer the comfort of certainty over over the growing pains that invariably accompany spiritual transformation. In fact, and this is is what I've been thinking about, we're often going to get angry when someone disagrees with our beliefs or when someone questions what we believe. And have you ever wondered why that is? Like, why the anger? And I've been thinking about that, right? And, and the, reason I, the reason I started out by talking about this idea of preferring the comfort of certainty over the growing pains that invariably accompany spiritual transformation is because I was thinking about this quote that I pulled up on my phone because I did not include it in my notes because my notes were done but my sermon wasn't. <laughs> this is Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. A mind that is stretched by a new experience can never go back to its old dimensions. Right? And, and so what we do is because we're very comfortable with what we currently believe, we don't want to be stretched. Because if we're stretched, it's uncomfortable. It creates discomfort. And so we prefer comfort over the possibility of spiritual growth. So I recently heard a story about a man whose wife had passed away. He was angry with God and began asking questions. You've, I'm sure if you've lived long enough, you have experienced that, you, like you've met that person, or you have been that person. You, you experience some kind of great loss in your life, and it, of course it's going to cause you to question. I remember when my, my niece died at six years old, and my stepbrother told me, Jeff, I, I'm not sure even what I believe anymore. I'm so angry with God. And I was like, you better be. Like, if you're not, I would be worried about you. Right? And, and so he's angry, and, and he's surrounded by his church, and all he gets in return with, with his questions and his, and his anger are empty platitudes. And he becomes so angry and he becomes so upset that he finally left his church. And one of his friends, he asked him, and he didn't do it in a judgmental way. He just simply asked him a question. He said, why are you so angry? And the man actually gave it some thought. Like he didn't just, you know, shoot back. He said, I guess I'm mostly angry at myself. Because I used to say those very same things. I'm angry that I never gave these things much thought and mad that the church never asked me to. They gave me easy answers, which I accepted without thinking. And now that I need to make sense of God and suffering, I don't even know where to start. I guess I'm mad because the church didn't teach me any better, and I'm upset with myself for not insisting that it should. For too long, the church has held itself up as the expert on spiritual matters. We're quick to supply answers, but not altogether comfortable with questions or doubt. But I wonder if we're providing answers to questions that no one's actually even asking. Like, have you ever seen that bumper sticker? that says Jesus is the answer? To what question? Really? I mean, if someone someone is suffering, and you look at them and say, well, Jesus is the answer. Well, thank you. Why did God, who's supposed to be all-powerful, let my six-year-old niece die? Jesus is the answer, Jeff. Thank you. In my experience, though, and here's the thing I, I want us to hear. In my experience, I only ask questions of those who I believe may actually have the answers. If I don't think you can answer my question, I'm not asking you. I'm asking questions of people I believe have the answers. And so if I'm asking God questions, it's, belie- it's because I believe God has the answers. If I am asking a fellow believer a question, it's because I think you may actually have insight for me. Why would we find that so offensive? We should be honored. But we, we voice our confidence in God, affirming over and over our unshakable faith, yet when asked questions, we respond with fear. This fear is pervasive in the church, Do we fear that the church's foundation is so rickety one well placed question might bring down the entire house? Do we fear that someone might ask a question that we can't answer? Do we fear a sincere question might cause us to doubt what we have been taught? I will say this the only way I've ever grown is through my doubt. The problem is you stretch, and it's very uncomfortable. And I think we also confuse doubt with disbelief. Doubt and faith actually go hand in hand. It's certainty that stands in stark contrast to faith. You don't need faith if you're certain, not doubt. Doubt's not the problem. Certainty is. It's been, it's been suggested that our reluctance to entertain questions has something to do with power. Right? And, and like, as I've been reading about this, I'm like, what seems to be the thing? I've, I've read some people that are like, go all the way back. And they're like, well, it's because of the power of those in charge, and they don't want to relinquish their power, so don't question them. And I guess there's some truth to that. But, but I wonder if maybe it's specifically fear of losing the power. It, it's the fear that's at the core of it, right? And Because I agree that anger is definitely a, a fearful response to honest questions, and, and maybe Maybe it's fear of losing power, but I may also, I, I believe that there's also this fear of losing our perceived power of determining who is saved. That's the real crux of the matter. I'm afraid that questions will begin to shake my holding of power to determine who is in and who is out. And in the process, what happens is I begin to fear losing my own salvation. Right? So, like, if... All right. This isn't in my notes, but I got time. I know Jaron was really good last week and got you out really quick. (laughs) But I'm back. All right? So, all right. So, So here's the thing, right? In 325... A.D., C.E., whatever you want to call it. Constantine pulls together the top top theologians, the leaders of the church across the Roman Empire. He pulls them together, right? And he says, you all get into this room in in Nicaea, and you cannot leave until you tell me what it is You actually all believe, because I can't figure it out. Because you guys over here, you talk about this. You over here, you're talking about that. You're over here talking about that. You're saying this is the most important thing. You're saying that's the most important thing. You don't know what's the most important thing. The one thing that you're all doing is you're talking about this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. So get together and tell me what it is you believe. And you cannot come out of this room until you do it. So they get together and they say, okay, this is what we believe. And I, and I can't help but imagine that it goes like this. Well, what do you guys believe over there? Well, we, we believe it's really important that, you know, we call God the Father. Oh, we're all good with that. Yeah, okay, okay. So, Father. We believe in God the Father. Is he almighty? Sure. Almighty. Was he the creator? Yep. Creator of everything. We'll just put heaven and earth. Okay. Heaven and earth. <laughs> I believe in God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And I know I'm switching creeds on you, but just follow me. <laughs> right? And they're like, yeah, no, absolutely. That's what's got us all in this room. We believe in Jesus Christ. But what did you say about his only Son? What? Yeah, well, this is what we believe. Well, but aren't we all God's children? Well, yeah, but, but this one's begotten. Well, what is it? What is Okay, fine, but if you're going to put that in there, you also need to include this one. Okay, fine, we'll include that one from you, and we'll include this one from us. And then, after they've done that, because Constantine's not letting them leave, right, then they say, okay, all right, good. Here's what we believe. Okay, great. Then, about 100 and 150 years later, we see the first formation of the canon. What we believe comes before the formation of our scriptures that we call the New Testament. So what happened is, at some point along the lines, Christianity went from, about, went from following a person to adhering to a certain set of beliefs. So then what happens... Are you following my logic here? Hold on. So then what happens is, at some point over the, over the centuries... It it, it gets to the point where the only thing that matters as far as my salvation is concerned is what I believe, not what I do. Right? And so if my salvation is completely connected to what I believe, then what do I have to defend? My beliefs. Because if I'm wrong about one of those things, what else might I be wrong about? And my salvation is completely, I'm unsure. I'm no longer certain about my salvation well wait a second didn't we already say certainty certainty is actually the opposite of faith faith is about trusting in the person of jesus certainty is about trusting in my set of beliefs so do not question my beliefs because if i'm wrong about that what else am i wrong about my salvation is in jeopardy and i am fill in the blank but what if it's about actually following Jesus? So Jesus confronted this attitude of religious superiority prevalent in his day. Right? And and that's what he's doing in these two parables. We we go back and we're like, okay, the parable is about everyone being important. Yes and no. Right? What? Did you notice how he begins these two parables? With questions. He's questioning them. Wouldn't you do that? Wouldn't wouldn't you? And at first glance, glance, these questions seem innocuous. But what they do is they begin to burrow into the conscience, prodding the listener to reconsider the parameters of God's love. And I've already got it figured out. This is who God loves. This is who God doesn't love. These are the clean people. These are the unclean people. Men that have been circumcised, God loves them. Men that haven't been circumcised, God does not love them. And, and, and Jesus begins to confront this by saying, well, wait a second. And those designated as sinners by the Pharisees, this is a very interesting thing. It would have included not only persons who broke the moral laws, but also those who did not maintain the ritual purity practiced by the Pharisees. And so rabbis had a list of despised trades because just by being engaged in the trade, it made you you ritually impure. So shepherding was actually listed among the despised trades by the rabbis, along with camel drivers, sailors, gamblers with dice, dyers, and tax collectors. And, of course, we've talked about tax collectors. And so what, what Jesus is asking, by, by, by reminding them that actually David used to refer to God as a shepherd. The only time that God is referred to as a shepherd in the New Testament is in parables, by the way. And Jesus is reminding them of that, Right? And, and so, so what Jesus is asking them is, do you also despise God and God's mercy? That's profound. The parable poses a double scandal for the Pharisees and scribes. Not only are they reminded of the biblical image of God as a shepherd, but also God takes more delight in celebrating with a sinner than with the scribes and Pharisees. get it in the second one like she finds and invites all her friends their righteousness did not make god rejoice did you catch that in the parable that's not the thing that the shepherd and the woman are rejoicing about the shepherd doesn't say Whew, well at least these 99 are still here praise them The celebration of the coming of the kingdom was taking place in Jesus' table fellowship with the outcasts, with the sinners, but because their righteousness had become a barrier separating them from the outcasts, the Pharisees were missing out. They stood in their self-righteousness and judged the celebration with Jesus, but by God at least they were right. You see, here's another thing that we've got to keep in mind. The Pharisees had connected the salvation of Israel to adhering to a set of beliefs and behaviors. What they believed is that if we could just, as God's people, live the right way, follow the right rules, then God would send his Messiah and he would deliver us from this oppression. You horrible people have got to get this right. You're making us look bad in front of God. We chuckle, but I wonder if there are not people in the church today who look at the rest of us and say to themselves, they're making us look bad in front of God. How dare they accept those people? (laughs) They're ruining my reputation. So they had this idea of what God's plan of salvation would look like. But God had God's own plan of what salvation would look like. And God connected it to a person. To apparently a person who, according to the righteous, was a vile sinner. Who now, we say, lived without sin. The Pharisees would not agree with that statement. All right, so this isn't just about whether or not it's okay to eat with sinners. This was about the possibility of salvation for the Pharisees. The emphasis on these parables is the joy of recovery, not the need for repentance. Right? Because sheep and coins can't repent. But the parables aim at calling the righteous to join the celebration. That's what the parable is about. It's not about the repentance of the coin and the sheep. It's about about the willingness of the righteous to join in. And whether one is going to join the celebration is all important because it reveals whether one's relationships are based on merit or mercy. Whether or not we accept people into the celebration says a lot about us. Do we value merit or mercy? Those who find God's mercy offensive can't celebrate. It's it's offensive to them. It's offensive to us. And what happens is, in the process, they exclude themselves from God's grace. The questions posed by Jesus represented the Pharisees, they presented the Pharisees with an opportunity to grow in their relationship with God. And we seem so afraid of it. We seem so afraid of questions. I got this email and I've I've gotten permission to share it. It doesn't mean I'm going to tell you who it's from. But I got this email this week. I wanted to take a moment to let you know that I have tuned in to a few of your services via podcast and they have been very healing to me. By the way, I want to pause there for a second and say this. This person had been um, and they're going to say this for just a couple weeks now, we didn't have our podcast, by the way, on our website until just a couple weeks ago. Just before this person looked for the podcast, like looked to listen, is when we put it on. Yeah, so just let that rest with you for a moment. Okay, so continue. I grew up in the Christian Congregational Church. My mom's foster father was the pastor. He died when I was sixteen. And it had been a long and hard journey since then, trying to find a church family. I struggle with the contemporary big church because it's just too far away from what I've known and loved. But sadly, my experience with the more traditional church has also been unsuccessful, particularly here. I moved from Colorado a couple years ago, and every church I've attended makes me feel further from God than I was before I stepped in. For the weary, me, sometimes we need to hear less about all the bad we're doing and what we ought to be doing instead, and more about the freedom that comes through your walk with Jesus. I recently recently went to a Bible study for parents, and the topic of discussion was denouncing the LGBTQ plus community as God has called us to hate evil, and I am complacent if I don't. So through my weariness, I went to church just to be told I was wrong and bad if my values did not align, when really, I just needed to hear, that there is guidance and peace through the Holy Spirit pertaining to marriage and parenthood. Who am I to decide which message is to be heard and when? But for a Bible study for parents, I couldn't help leaving there thinking, what a wasted opportunity to grow in faith. It's been nearly two months since then, and I've been looking at churches' mission statements and listening to services of the few churches who have them available. For a while there, I thought I was actively trying to find something to dislike, to excuse the absence of church and relationship with the Father but then I found your church. It seems simple to preach about things you know your audience is agreeable with. It takes a special gift given by God to speak the word truthfully in a way that will encourage the antagonist. I haven't had the heart to make it in physically, but in my research, your congregation has been meaningful. I hope to make it in soon. In the meantime, I felt called to tell you that I believe all believers, particularly in your case, have the opportunity to help bring folks closer to or further from God. Though I've not yet met you in person, know that you making your services virtually available available brought me to a place of worship when I so desperately needed it. I recently spoke with my aunt about my grievances in finding a church and told her that I've been so desperate lately. I got on my knees and out loud asked God, please tell me what to do and I'll do it. And she said, just be sure to listen when he tells you. The next day I listened to one of your services. I once asked my grandpa, what's next Sunday's service going to cover? And he said, I don't know, God hasn't told me yet. Your services strike me as a man listening to God, not a man with an agenda or performance to put on. Thank you for allowing the space to express this, and may you find joy in the work you've done, bringing the weary closer to the Holy Spirit. I had an opportunity then to visit with this person. And through the conversation, we, just stu- we began talking about questions. And they wanted to know, how do you deal with it when you find yourself not believing something you're reading in the Bible, but everyone around you tells you you're going to go to hell if you don't believe it? Another one of my friends looked at this person and said, first, we just want to acknowledge it's a lonely place, especially when it's your family. We're not called to create lonely places. When people come to the church and they come with questions, it's because they believe we actually might have some answers. And, And rather to be quick to offer them answers that aren't actually answering their questions, maybe we need to be comfortable just sitting with the questions for a while. Maybe there are questions that we actually need to hear ourselves so that through those questions that someone else has had placed in their heart by, I would argue, God, maybe what's really happening is we're being given the opportunity to grow. Maybe it's time, if we're Christian to embrace questions rather than feel the need to give quick answers. Amen.